Hello there, and welcome to Lost in Citations. My name is Robert S. Murphy, and I'll be guest hosting this week. We are dedicating this episode to the memory of Dr. Kurt Fisher. For this special episode, we're interviewing award-winning neuroscientist, Dr. Mary Helen Imordino-Yang. To say that she has an impressive resume would be an understatement. She currently is the director of the USC Center for Affective Neuroscience, Development, Learning, and Education. She's the professor of education at the USC Rossius School of Education and a professor of psychology at the Brain and Creativity Institute, also at USC. She earned her doctorate at the Harvard Graduate School of Education in 2005. This is where we first met, uh, roughly 15 years ago. She was mentored by Dr. Kurt Fisher, who founded the Mind, Brain, and Education program at Harvard, and who's known as the father of that movement. Mary Helen later went on to become the president of the International Mind, Brain, and Education Society. I recommend joining that society if you like today's content. Today's article is titled, Building Meaning Builds Teens' Brains. Building Meaning Builds Teens' Brains. Mary Helen has a keen interest in how the brain develops, how brain growth affects psychology, how context affects brain growth, and how all of this should better inform learning, teaching, and even parenting. I have to tell you, I've been following Mary Helen's work for a decade and a half, and it's always a pleasure. But Mary Helen's mind has so much going on up there. And her brain works so fast that listening to her speak is like listening to a mixture of um, Carl Sagan, Robin Williams, and then some Neil deGrasse Tyson mixed in there for good measure. So get ready to be showered with an amazing amount of scientific details infused with a great enthusiasm for the sciences and education. You know, there's so much content to today's interview that I actually recommend listening to it in chunks. The first 10 minutes or so is our introduction and our discussion of uh, Dr. Kurt Fisher. From around the 15-minute mark, we get into great detail of her current study. Passing around the 40-minute mark, we transition into the second half with fascinating new understandings of how the default network in the brain is not what we had previously assumed it to be, and how we need to toggle between concretely focused time and downtime to be able to sustain higher level thinking and cognitive growth later in life. Okay, so you have been warned. Now, let's jump into the interview. I hope you enjoy this just as much as I did. And here we are with Mary Helen. Good morning, is it over there? Yeah, it's good morning. Yes, thank you, Robert. Is it good evening where you are? Yes, yes. I just put the baby to sleep, and it's a, it's a midnight talk for me. <laughs> I just made breakfast for my baby, so. <laughs> good baby at this point, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> How many uh, children do you have now? I have two, uh, 19 and 16. One wow. of them just finished wow. your first year of university, and the other one is in high school. At the very end, I might have, if we have time, I might have a question about how you actually balance your incredible writing life and research life with family life. Um, I hope we can get there. I hope we can get there. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, talking about role models. So, uh, yeah. Word. 
Kurt. Kurt, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we all miss Kurt. Today's podcast uh, is dedicated uh, to the memory of uh, yeah. Dr. Kurt Fisher at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I first met Kurt in the early 2000s. For me, that was that seemed like a golden time at the Graduate School of Education. There's so really many people in right? I, yes, <laughs> I miss it very much. Yeah. Um, please, please talk about whatever you'd like to say. This is a dedication to Kurt. So about the time, uh, any memories you might want to share with us? You know, I, I, I will be forever grateful to Kurt and to his contemporaries, right? It mm. really was a golden time in yeah, yeah. psychology at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, um, where, you know, people really had an, uh, a, uh, an appreciation of the importance of theory mm -hmm. uh, and of taking things slowly and really thinking through problems. You know, as Kurt used to say, studying human development in medias race, right? In the middle of things, right? He used to say, uh, uh, explaining the variability, not explaining the variability away, mm, right? Mm, mm, they mm. took the time to think about the complexities of the issues that actually are playing out in, the, in a developing human in context, right? And I think a, a lot of what happens now is, you know, frantically paced. I think in part, ironically, because of the accessibility of information and, and um, papers and all this kind of stuff online, which is hugely helpful. But at the same time, it, it leads you into a kind of false value of productivity that is superficial. Yeah. And one of the things that I would, I think I really have taken away uh, from working with Kurt and Catherine Snow and Howard Gardner and David Rose and Kathy Abe and, you know, all of the amazing human development, Bob Keegan, human development people in that time period was that mm -hmm. to really take the time to build out a theory and to stop and really engage with development as it happens. Yeah. and try to understand the sources of variation and variability um, and think about those in terms of what they mean for the development that we're trying to promote and support in education. And Bob Selman, for example, too. Mm -hmm. you know, all, all of these amazing scholars, it was, it was just a golden time, as you put it. And I'm so, so fortunate to have been trained during that time. There's lots of great work going on now, but I think there's always there's always the reminder that the standard is this kind of slow build theory that's studied in the world. And we don't constrain what we see overly, but we also don't just frantically plow ahead. Um, and I should also say that one of the things that I most appreciated about my mentors after Kurt, you mm -hmm. know, the Damasios, Mm -hmm. Antonio and Hannah Damasio was that they also really picked up on that, uh, you know, for me and, and taught me mm -hmm. that, you know, like Antonio would say, ideas need to mature, Mary Helen. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, you work really hard, right? This isn't move slowly, but you you take the time to think deeply about what you're doing. You don't just frantically, you know, pump stuff out. And I think that's really, that's a, that's a very important lesson that we could still do well to remember now. Nice. Uh, and, nice. And I think another thing about Kurt is how, you know, 
he was a father at the same time as he was a prodigious scholar, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And he was my first introduction to parenting in academia. He had twin two-year-olds when mm-hmm. I began working with him. Um, and, you know, I think watching him navigate his personal and academic, you know, scholarly domains was instrumental to my own development and also others at the Harvard Grad School of Education at that time, David Rose, and especially I really, you know, learned a ton about parenting and scholarly thinking kind of in one person. Of course, he and he and Kurt were very close. And this Mm -hmm. was all really the, this was the, this was the social atmosphere of that school at that time, which Kurt was instrumental in, in creating and promoting. Thank you. Unfortunately, he passed away last year, and the newer academics will be reading what he wrote, but they would never get a chance to actually meet him directly, right? right. Um, do you have something that you could say to people that are just reading about him now that can help read between the lines? Yeah, you know, I, I think keeping, like, I would, I think my advice would be that, and this is true for all work, not just Kurtz, but mm-hmm. the, the beauty of these seminal bodies of theory is that you build off of them, right? Mm. Or you deconstruct them and you reconstruct them mm-hmm. to, to shore up parts that were weak or to fix parts that were incorrect, right? And that oftentimes we're inclined, and this is true with Howard's work too, Howard Gardner, who's mm-hmm. of course a close contemporary of Kurtz, you know, that we're inclined to throw out the baby with the bathwater. If, if someone boldly makes predictions about the nature of the human mind based mm-hmm. on the evidence that they have at that time, you engage with that and you take the sort of undergirding principles, right? And you figure out how those may be playing out in the kind of data we're getting now. It's a very different world now. There's yeah, social yeah. media, there's all these kinds of things. And you use engage with the big ideas and intentions and you rework what needs to be reworked, but always with an eye to, or with a mind of building off of the ground that's laid underneath you by these really amazing thinkers. Mm, and mm, mm. Oftentimes we're, again, inclined to just discard and not really engage with the ideas that really still pertain and that were fundamental to the way we think now, but we forget where they came from. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important for your own academic honesty and for your own scholarly contributions to deeply engage with the origins of the ideas we have, to unpack the assumptions that we build from and to examine those and scrutinize those, build them anew. And this, this kind of idea of deconstructing and reconstructing, you mm-hmm, know, I learned from mm-hmm. Kurt, but, you know, build them anew and deconstruct them, take out the pieces that didn't turn out to be right, but explain why they're wrong, right? You don't just discard them without further examination. You need to reconcile what we're finding with what they thought and, and in nice. doing that, you actually really come to understand what you're studying now much more thoroughly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think oftentimes we just we discard the stuff that came before or we forget where it came from and we just incorporate it. And it's really important to try to maintain that sense of scholarly history 
of ideas. And some ideas turned out to be correct and some ideas turned out to be well-intentioned, but we now have another explanation that they couldn't have been known then. And you're building from that. And mm -hmm. I think that that's real intellectual honesty. And it's also the best way to actually deeply understand what it is that we're studying now. That's wonderful advice. I, I, I totally agree. I, I, we don't have enough of that. That's, that's really no, great. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, there are two articles. The title that we're looking at uh, today is Building Meaning Builds Teens' Brains. Okay. And right. this one is published like last year, I think it was. Uh, yeah, May 2020. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so let's base the conversation on this with the understanding that there's a major study coming out. When do you think that will be coming out officially? The one that's in revision right now is looking mm -hmm. at um, the data at wave one. And there's another that's looking at the longitudinal findings, like so how the wave one data predict five years later. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have others that are more straightforward looking at the effects of violence exposure and things like that. Okay, so a series of uh, papers will be coming out soon. Right, okay. yeah. Although this would be a great introduction to much of that then. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, wow, look out wow. for those papers. I mean, they'll be coming out probably over the next year. Looking at this paper that came out last year, it says your USC-led team talked to teenagers. Um, and my understanding is, uh, so rather than actually you guys doing the talking, there was a lot more listening going on uh, with the teenagers, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you explain the, the gist of what was going on uh, with these listening sessions? Yeah, sure. So the way that we've been conducting our work, so I've, building, I've been building out this, this protocol since the first paper in 2009 that came mm -hmm. out in, in the U.S. Proceedings of the National Academy. Um, and uh, what that was with adults across the lifespan, and we've been kind of marching backward in developmental time to try to understand how it gets like that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The backbone of the protocol that I've designed is sit with participants one at a time. In this case, teenagers, we have a whole series of interviews and other activities we engage them in. We also do neuroimaging with them and psychophysiological recordings, we're recording embodied cardiac outputs and things like that. This is, in particular, this paper focuses on a series of interviews we did about both their responses to true documentary stories that we put together mm -hmm. um, from around the world that feature adolescents in various kinds of situations, right? But they're all there's no actors. Um, and so that's very compelling to teenagers to sort of think about that. It's compelling to anybody. And so we show them, the, the, we tell them the story. Here's a, here's a young, uh, young woman or, you know, a girl in, uh, you know, Pakistan who wants to go to school and all these things. And the Taliban, you know who they are. Let me explain that to you, right? They, they tried to stop kids, girls from going to school and she kept going. And they eventually did this whole thing where they boarded her school bus and shot her in the head. And now she lived and here she is at age 13 explaining, you know, her situation and with her dad. And then they just watch and we ask him, how does this person's story make you feel? Right. What do you learn from this? And then we let kids tell us whatever they want to say about it. And then we do that with 40 stories. Okay. Yeah, that is interesting. And then we, we uh, put them in the MRI scanner, right? Mm -hmm. And then we show them little snippets, a little reminder, five-second version of the documentary. You know? uh. And then it just stops. And then they have buttons to push to tell us how strongly emotionally engaged they are with the story at that moment. 
uh, you know, like right then and there, how much do you really care about this? How much is it moving you emotionally? How much are you engaged with it? We're not what you felt before, what you normally would feel, what you think. And then we look at the ways that the brain activation patterns and physiological embodied patterns build these coherent patterns of processing and the ways that those patterns are predicted by the individual and cultural and experience dependent ways that they made meaning in the inner field. And then if we systematically code those ways of making understanding and look at the neural data across 65 kids when they are feeling different ways, we use mathematical modeling to pull out the correspondences between those. And mm. that's what this paper is about. Mm. That's under review. Um, and then what we can show, which this is what's described in a, in a holistic way, is that the degree to which kids make certain kinds of meaning, their dispositions for engagement with deep meaning making, and wave one, which is age like 15, they're the, not what they said about the story, but the level at which, the cognitive level at which they're constructing, how inclined are they to look for the bigger lesson here? to make some kind of what we're calling transcendent understanding. And this is really powerful, really powerful, especially because we find that these effects are above and beyond the effects of IQ, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. That means they're marginally related to IQ, but when you control for IQ, they become even clearer. So it's really above and beyond the effect of IQ. It's above and beyond the effect of socioeconomic status of their family. Um, including their parents' education level and their family's income to needs ratio. Mm -hmm. It looks like, and it's above and beyond ethnicity in, in our sample. We have a range of ethnic groups in the, in the study. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and what this looks like is a kind of general, a general disposition that teenagers can develop around proclivities to make bigger meaning of the things they witness and to connect their own sense of self and purpose to that meaning. Mm -hmm. And again, it's, it's not the meaning they make. It's not that kids who say, I really want to help the world do better. It's kids who, who say that by making sense out of complex situations at yeah. a sort of abstract as compared to only at a concrete level. Mm -hmm. now, um, but then these dispositions for also thinking about what's the bigger moral takeaway here? What's the broader systems level implication of this story mm -hmm. like education is a human right i never realized before i go to school every day with my friends we take it for granted but i ought not to take it for granted because not everyone in the world has this opportunity and yeah. you know now that i think about it this opportunity is really how you get the opportunity for prosperity as an adult so that it really everybody should have this opportunity it's not right that they don't mm -hmm. right kids who say things like that who also go to that high level meeting that's the that's the proclivity that we see is actually growing them over time. Wow. And, and what's interesting there is that at wave one, when they're 15 or so, the degree to which they do that is related to things like working memory capacity. It's mm -hmm. related to things like uh, creativity and divergent thinking and thinking outside the box. Things that are associated with this kind of flexible meaning making in the world. So, so okay. both things have these very important contributions to a kid's ability to manage themselves. And what it suggests is that education really needs to attend systematically to both and to attend to the support kids may need to mm. build the kind of 
cognitive affective muscles, so to speak, to move themselves between these modes in accordance with the current context or situation? When is it time wow. to kind of dig in and work? And when is it time to make, uh, you know, step back and think about why am I doing this? And what does this mean? Okay. Wow. You answered a lot of the questions I already had prepared. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, like half the world has these questions. <laughs> I've been thinking about it a lot. Yeah. I've heard you uh, speak in, in various venues. Yeah. Um, and a few years ago, when I heard you talk about earlier stages of this research, you were pushing the fact that with the fMRIs, even the brainstem activation mm -hmm. was surprising, but also compelling. Yeah. Um, now, for the listeners, why is it interesting that our brainstems get activated when people are listening to these affective stories? It, like the story of Malala that I just told you yes, is yes. You know, quite compelling and inspirational. It's, it, it, it's angering. It's a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, these, complex, mm -hmm. these complex stories. Um, yeah. Why is this interesting? So why it's interesting is because it, a couple of things. Mm -hmm. First thing, which is what I was talking about originally before we had these longitudinal teenager stories, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. is, is still true. And that is that when we engage with deep, engaged thinking, right? Motivated thinking about complex issues and stories and situations and ethical deliberations. We aren't just engaging high level sort of cortical mechanisms for, um, you know, complex cognition. We are also engaging, in fact, we think that it's instrumental. It's actually um, building the kind of psychological power behind ideas and beliefs and ethics and identities and things like that. That we, that we are engaging very low level systems in the brain and even into the brain stem, as you pointed out, that are essential for survival. Yeah. These are, you know, regions of the brainstem that we share with alligators, you know, and all mm -hmm, vertebrates, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. that are involved in quite literally mediating between the brain and the face and body, right, and mm -hmm. in um, uh, monitoring and managing basic physiological regulation and homeostasis uh, in order to keep yourself alive. I mean, this isn't just metaphor. These, you know, you get damage in these brainstem regions, you get either, depending on where it is, you get profound disturbances of consciousness, you know, yeah, which is yeah. really in, a, in essence, loss of self and awareness, right? You know, like, like persistent vegetative state or mm -hmm. coma mm -hmm. um, or in, uh, you know, the medulla, which is kind of right above the spinal cord is the yeah. last stop before you're just on the spinal cord. Uh, you know, we get massive systematic activation in there when people are thinking really deeply about wow. these big ideas. That's Not amazing. Not only to show them the story, but when they say, yeah, I'm really moved by this right now. I'm yeah. deeply engaged with it right now. Um, and, you know, in the medulla, you get brain, you get damage in there, you know, from a stroke or a, an injury. We can't even keep you alive on life support. I mean, mm, you, mm. you know, you you very rapidly become physiologically dysregulated. Your heart stops beating. You you stop breathing, and you die. Um, and so, I mean, it really, uh, really um, sort of lays bare the fundamental, you know, connections, the layering of our 
moral and ethical and personal sense, our identity, right, our purpose in life, onto the evolutionarily old mechanisms for survival and physiological regulation that we share with all vertebrates. Mm-hmm. And um, why is this really important in the teenager data? One of the things that we found in the teens data, which I think is especially uh, interesting and important, is that the role of emotional, the sort of statistical you know, power of, of emotional uh, you know, button presses, right? Like mm-hmm. how strongly a kid said they were feeling about the story and engaged with the stories they were thinking about it. Um, that the emotion, um, all emotion wasn't kind of created equal in the brain. Emotion played a different role in organizing the neural correlates of cognition, depending on the kind of cognition. And this is really important for educators too. Um, So if a kid reported feeling really strong emotion to a story that in the interview, they had had only concrete construals to. So in other words, they had said uh, in a really context specific way, oh, poor girl, I feel so bad for her. Like that's so unfair, that's terrible. I hope she gets to go to school, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If that's, and then they said later, they have a lot of emotion about that. That doesn't organize anything in their brain that's like recognizable to us. We just see a lot of activity everywhere. Mm -hmm. And by the way, they're not more likely to remember the story in a surprise test five years later. Okay. Okay, that's very interesting, yeah. Yes, but on the other hand, if they, also talked about or primarily talked about you know it makes me realize i go to school every day with my friends and i take it for granted you know education is actually a human right i never realized that before and and this is wrong that not everybody has this opportunity right when they make that kind of transcendent or abstract meaning systems level meaning that that is beyond just the story of that girl in pakistan and now becomes something true about the world in general that has implications for everyone, including yourself, Mm -hmm. right? When they make that kind of meaning, when they also express that they're feeling strong emotion, that strong emotion actually drives the coherence, statistically speaking, of the neural activity patterns that correspond to the the interview. So in other Mm -hmm. words, if they have strong emotion in the context of an abstract construal, they say, I feel really strongly about the fact that education is a human right, and I'm really getting worked up about this, I'm deeply engaged with it. Then we see everything sharpen, statistically speaking. And now the neural correlates become even clearer and more defined. And, uh, and the statistical uh, relationship between those correlates and the interview abstraction becomes even stronger. Um, and, and, and what we can show is that uh, that way of making more transcendent meaning, which is also a kind of deep processing, right? To go back, mm-hmm. to harken back to research from the 70s, right? Is associated with certain kinds of behaviors that we can see in the interview, like eye-based behaviors, where people kind of close their eyes, where they look away, they stop to kind of go inward. They stop speaking, they slow down, they literally use fewer words per minute. Yeah. And um, and they start they kind of think about it and they construct this inner understanding, which they then express. Mm-hmm. And when people do that, they also show these neural activations more in those systems that correspond to that inner thinking, the so-called mm-hmm. default mode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when they do both of those things, the both the eye gaze patterns for the and the abstractions, 
and the brain correlates of that, then five years later, when they're 19, 20 years old, when we bring them back to the lab and say, hey, you know, do you remember a long time ago when you came back at the beginning of high school and you know, we, we told a bunch of stories, we showed you these documentaries about teenagers, remember that? Um, can you tell us which ones of those you remember? Do you remember any of those? They remember more. They actually statistically remember the ones that they had this, this deeper processing of, uh-huh. which uh-huh. makes uh-huh. sense. And especially so if they had a lot of emotion to them. But again, like a lot of emotion isn't the same if you just have emotion to a concrete construal. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, mm-hmm. poor her, I feel so bad, that's terrible. That doesn't get you anywhere cognitively over the long term, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the thing is, emotion is instrumental in driving this higher order thinking. And I think we were seeing glimmers of that in the early data that you're, that mm-hmm. you're you know, referencing, where mm-hmm. when people were experiencing emotion about any kind of even immediate situation, they showed activations in these uh, brainstem regions, but they showed them even more when the emotion was about this kind of higher order, transcendent, systematic kind of meaning making about the implications for the broader world. And that's extremely powerful. Why? Because yeah, it yeah. really reminds us that the emotions we need to cultivate in education, you know, everybody now is starting to get on the train where they understand you need to have emotion to be able to attend and all that. But our emotions are so often this kind of emotion about what's happening here and now. I'm reacting to the how I feel right now to the problem or to the uh, getting bad grade uh, or a good grade, any of that stuff, right? Or like this is really, you know, this is really like exciting and entertaining. So I'm like all hooped up and I'm 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 clapping and I'm playing the game to remember all the stuff. And you're like, that's not the kind of emotion that actually grows the mind or the brain over time. Mm, right. Mm. The kind of emotion that that we think is growing the mind and brain, especially over time, is the kind that is about deeper, uh, more transcendent understanding. Mm, When you mm. can feel the power of understanding how some mathematical equation works, when you can feel the really deep sense of, of knowing and of agency, that comes from appreciating the historical context of something mm, mm. and thinking about the possible future of it and your role in that future, that kind of emotion grows kids over time, both psychologically and neurologically is what our data suggests. And we really need to think seriously about how our, our, our institutional structures and processes and practices in traditional education invoke emotion. Mm, because mm, they're mm. mainly designed if, if they're meant to invoke emotion at all they're mainly designed to invoke these kinds of concrete uh context specific emotions i got an a woohoo i'm done i got an yeah. f oh ah, this is terrible i'm so afraid to tell my parents blah 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 right uh, or like i got it right i won the game i got the points i right those kinds of emotions don't appear to be the kind that grow you very much over time the and kind this that is, grow you are the deeper kind where you're really stopping to think about something and really understanding it and really yeah. knowing what it means. And that yeah. kind of emotion, that's that kind of curiosity, that kind of perspective, that's what grows you over time. Okay. And, and this is what the teachers and parents, obviously, should know more about. But I guess, right. uh, yeah, so that's your mission. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. We're trying to uncover. I mean, we're trying to understand it, you know? Yeah. Um, that's right. It's, and it's beyond the predictive power of, of IQ, right? So we can, 
we can look even at the structural, the structural changes in the brain. That is like, you know, the thickness changes in the cortex, right? We can measure mm-hmm. those pictures mm-hmm. of the kid's brain at age 15 and again at age 17, right? Um, and what we can show is that IQ does predict changes in certain thickness in certain brain regions. And where? Mm-hmm. In like what we call the medial temporal lobes, maybe, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is where the hippocampus is. It's, it's regions that are involved in, you know, so-called semantic memory, right? Being able to uh, know facts, pull facts out, quickly uh, manipulate information. Great. Okay. But IQ does not explain what this abstract talk measure explains, which is abstract talk doesn't do anything statistical to the temporal lobes. It's involved in growth all over executive functioning, uh, self, uh, deep processing, uh, uh, planfulness, frontal lobes, you know, physiological regulatory capacity regions that are involved in being able to kind of monitor your wellness and engage with people in an empathic way. Like mm. all these other brain regions, it's really quite a striking image to look at the data, are grown by abstract talk, even if you control for IQ. Yeah, that, that that's amazing. That's amazing. It's really amazing, yeah. Um, it's really like, even to me, I still like look at those data and just sit there and like gawk at them. They're, they're amazing. It's really amazing to see. <laughs> and what it, what it means is that all kids can do it. We need to provide them the support to engage in this in this in this way. So, you know, let me just say one more thing to make sure mm-hmm. people understand this. Mm-hmm. It's not that certain kinds of brains do better. <laughs> what well, that's not what we're showing, right? Yeah. What we're what we're showing is that you know, you think about it this way. Let's say a kid comes into your office and says, "Oh, Dr. Murphy, you know, guess what? I'm going to be joining the swimming team this fall." Right? Okay. Or it comes into your office, or she comes into your office and says, "Well, guess what, Dr. Murphy? I'm going to be I'm going to be joining the soccer team this fall, or the running team, let's say." Right? No matter the fitness level, the sports talent level that kid has, mm-hmm. you can make some different predictions about how three months from then their physical skills and and bodily muscles will have changed. Right? That's basically what we're showing. Okay. That swimming grows you in a different way than running does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what we're basically doing is saying, come in and show us how you think. And so thinking like this grows you not as much and not in these ways as thinking like this does. So we're watching a kid show us how they think and watching the ways that those patterns of and dispositions of thinking over time are growing them from the inside out, just the, the same way that, you know, you're running or you're swimming practice, you know, as you do it, you strengthen mm-hmm. yourself. And mm-hmm. that's what we think is going on. I see. Okay. That's added clarity for that point. Thank you. Yeah, yeah you're welcome. Um, the next question I had, um, we were both mentored by Dr. Kurt Fisher at Harvard. And um, uh, there's so much we can talk about, about yeah, Dr. Kurt. One of the first things I learned from him, uh, this is, I think, 2008 or maybe even earlier than that, was his work with uh, SIR interviews, the self-in-relationship interviews, and his his mentoring of other people doing these interviews. And through that, I learned about high support context and low support context and how those contexts change, literally change the level of uh, responses from the participants. Now, so out of the blue questions produce level A, uh, and then 
if you talk, if you have a battery of questions and you sit them down for 40 minutes and have them do sheets and, and work and enjoy this engaging conversation, they produce level B. And so it's this, the range that you have to look at to understand the individual's development, right? And that's what was done with the, with the SIR interviews. And uh, it, 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 they were done to, to prove that there was an interesting gap between cold questions and then these uh, uh, um, hot questions uh, with, uh, with engaging discussions. Yeah, context um, matters is what. Context matters. Yeah, it comes down to that. Now, um, as I was reading the research, I, I, I was always wondering what sort of context would your questions fit in uh, in comparison to this high versus low of the SIR interviews? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I see this work as really growing out of. Mm -hmm. um, what I learned from working with Kurt and others at the Harvard Grad School of Education back in the turn of the 2000s, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it really does. I, 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 I would give a lot to sit down with Kurt right now as his old self and explain to him, you know, what we're finding because it really does validate a lot of his ideas and also really extends them in ways that I think he would find very exciting. I mm -hmm. hope. Um, but, but the idea is that there, what he was demonstrating is, is they had developed, he was Bruce Kennedy, I believe, um, had developed a, a, a structured interview that allowed them to probe the ways that individuals, including children, but also adults, systematically um, vary the complexity of cognition they can sort of manage, mm -hmm. depending on the way in which the, 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 the topic and the situation is framed. Mm -hmm. um, and depending also on the internal characteristics of the person. So it's not like you move everybody to the same levels. People yeah. bring their own uh, skills to that situation. And those skills are dynamically enacted and, and constructed in, in accordance with um, the constraints and affordances of the situation. And so what we've done here is specifically try to design a situation that in some ways is very high support, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, in that we have given kids, we, we have curated for them really uh, uh, complex, you know, the, the kinds of compelling stories that warrant complex thinking, right? Yep, we make yep. it easy for you, at least sometimes out of one or some out of these 40 stories, you're going to really, if you have a disposition to become deeply engaged with this kind of thinking, you're going to show it to us. That's what we've tried to do. Um, but then we also want, and this was something else I really learned from Kurt and his contemporaries, you, you also want to uh, let the individual vary as they will, right? So you want to be very systematic about the things you're structuring to support in very clearly defining the 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 dimensions on which you want to study the natural individual variance mm, in that mm, context mm, mm. so we try to set up a context that is that is as uh as uh, consistent as possible across uh in interviewees mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. um while allowing the kid to say anything they want Right. And we're yeah. videotaping that so that yeah. we're good scientists yeah. and we have a record of what the experimenter said, what the kids said, what they did, what we did. Right. So we can go back and unpack if there might be some kind of bias or something in there. We can find that presumably if we need to. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea is that we want kids to show us not just what they can do when we really prod and support and lead mm-hmm. and cajole, mm-hmm. but what they do do when the situation arguably is calling for it, right? Okay, yes. That, I, I give yeah, you Malala yeah. in Pakistan and I say, how does this story make you feel? Arguably, you really ought to have a strong <laughs> reaction to that story, right? If That's you right. don't find this extraordinary at all, not much there to go on, that tells us something about your internal yeah. dispositions yeah. and proclivities and the yeah. ways that you're cultivating them or not, right? So we give kids lots of chances to show us how they naturally move themselves between these levels of making meaning. And then uh, we use that and we capture that. And then we look at how that standardized situation, which is very high support in some ways and very low support in others, we don't lead them, right? Mm, we let mm. them do whatever they want to do, but only with a really compelling thing to start with. And, you know, with a wraparound situation where they just had a nice lunch and we're, you know, we make yeah. friends with them first. They're like, oh, yeah. we, do, we do all the other stuff. We have kids from their neighborhood who are our research assistants helping with the studies. And, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? We make sure that the people who are engaging with them are from their same ethnic and linguistic backgrounds. And, you know, we do many things to take out of the equation the variance that we that is due to support that we're not interested in studying in this context, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in knowing how do you not show us what you can really do when you are intimidated by the situation. You know what I mean? If I show up on a yeah. laptop and say, now tell me how you feel. <laughs> That's a totally <laughs> interview, right? So I show yeah. up in jeans and a and a blouse and t-shirt and a you know and a, and a ponytail and say, like, there's no right or wrong answers. We really want to know what teenagers think about this. So we want to know what you think about this. Tell okay. us how it makes you feel. Take your time, right? And then what Got we it. show is that their proclivities to do these things actually correspond to how they make meaning out of, you know, the things they've witnessed in their neighborhoods. Like mm. we have another interview about, you know, crime and violence and things like that. We have other interviews about um, their hopes and dreams for themselves for the future, uh, you know, their, their possible selves. We use uh, Daphne Oyserman's interview yeah. on possible future selves. Yeah. Um, we look at, uh, uh, you know, kind of what happens to them over time. And the proof is in the pudding, wow. right? It's wow. not about yeah. what you can do. It's what you do do, right? You know, there's a lot of us who could go for yeah. a morning run every day and we could be more fit, but if you don't, you're not going to have the health benefits, Right. And it's yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, maybe a kid could think this way. I think all kids can, you know, to a degree, um, you know, to varying degrees, but uh, you know, a could, could think this way, but you know, do you, because mm. it's the actual mm. act of doing it that grows you over time. So it's not about potential. Wow. It's about yeah. realizing that potential. What do you do? And that's something else that I really learned from working with Kurt. That's you know? a great answer. Wow. 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 I, I, um, yeah, th- this was a big question of mine. I was just wondering how how this was structured in your mind, how how you saw it being. Uh, okay, so you you put them in this context that is very very close to a high support context, like in the SIR interview days. However, you don't actually you do everything but pull them there. Yes, and that's then, right. And then, and then, and then I set it all up, and then we say, "What yeah. are you going to do with this? What are you going to do? Yeah, yeah, that what is so cool. I, okay, we get forty wow. tries. Like it's not a high <laughs> thing, right? We get forty tries, 
Yeah. You know what I mean? There's a lot of different stories in there. You can think about stories that have very different contexts. You know what I mean? And then, you know, you can see what works for you. Kind of, you know, we're giving them a lot of chances. Got it. And then Um, the kids that, that don't take the bait, that's, that's the big tell. That's the big tell. Yeah. That's right. Oh, they whether right. or not they could. I mean, I, I got to think that, you know, some every kid did it to a degree, right? So if I sat down and said, well, did you ever think about what this might mean for you? Did yeah. you ever think about, is there a broader lesson here? You know, maybe I could lead them along the path, but that's not what I want to know. Yeah. What yeah. I want to yeah. know is not, can you do it? It's do you do it. When you're out yeah. in the world and you see the news, when you walk down the street and you witness a homeless mm. person, mm. what do you think? Do you just mm. walk on by and kind of leave it at that? Or do you... You know, do you actually, you know, oh. develop some dispositions and deeper curiosities that drive you to make bigger meaning? Oh, wow. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, okay. I mean, the, the, the way you structured that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, so executive control network and uh, c- contrasting with uh, the default later on. Uh, you already okay. talked about this a lot, but uh, for the listener's sake, um, concrete talk is, is more correlated with uh, executive control network. At wave one, yeah. Yeah. Like in the one. moment when they, they talk in the interview and then they go on the scanner. And so it's it doesn't correlate trial by trial. In other words, like if mm-hmm. you talk completely about this story mm-hmm. and then you get in the scanner and you watch this story, we can't really make any direct, there's nothing there. But yeah. what we can show is that in the population of kids that we mm-hmm. studied, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the more they made a lot of concrete meaning, mm-hmm. the more they activated executive control network overall across the experiment. And this no. kind of makes sense oh. because, yeah. it, you know, what is executive control doing? Yeah, yeah. It's the kind of here and now. Move yourself in and out of this space. Notice what's around you. React appropriately to regulate yourself in that space and and engage uh, and pay attention, quote unquote, mm-hmm. to what's mm-hmm. what's around you. And, and that was also associated, like I said, with better relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the parents think they're easier to raise. The teachers like them. Um, you know, th- those that's a good thing. And have more 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 friends and different more diversity of friends, you know, all that stuff is good. It's not that it's not good for you. That's really important to do. Yeah. Um, but it's not enough is what it's I mean. Yeah. And the other thing I want to tell you though, Robert, uh, yeah. before you move on, is that yeah. executive control network, really interestingly, was also instrumentally involved in the abstract talk. Okay. Trial yeah, yeah, trial, okay. Right? Please talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this is really important. So what we found is that you know, the so-called default mode network, which is involved in this kind of deeper transcendent thinking, you know, kind of outside of the here and now, mm-hmm. possible futures, understanding the past, uh, ethical and moral deliberations, broader understanding, those kinds of things that you can't physically see in the here and now, right? Um, uh, that uh, that kind of meaning was associated with the default mode. But in a trial by trial, like if you talked about Malala in terms of like, you know, it makes me realize education is a human right kind of way, right? And not just, oh, poor girl, I feel so bad for her, right? Yeah. Then what happened in the scanner is that you would, statistically, we could show on that, when you saw Malala on the scanner, you would show more default mode activity. But especially so, if you show really early in the trial, right when the story of Malala first mm. comes on in the first mm. five seconds, mm. when you go, oh, wait, there's something bigger here. If you show executive control and not, oh, wait, there's something bigger here, and then systematically deactivate, not just return to baseline, but shove down mm. the executive control. So you've got to pull it up, get the default mode going, we think, mm. and then deactivate the, the executive control to activate the default mode. 
Because why? It takes cognitive effort and sort of strategic mental shaping of your mindset to move yourself into a productive, deeper thinking kind of place. It's not just daydreaming about whatever, right? Mm, mm, Which also activates mm. the default mode. Yeah, yeah. It's strategically, effortfully, potentially thinking about the deep, broader, transcendent implications of this story. And it, it, the default and the executive control networks are actually concertedly working together in this systematic trade-off mm, that enables mm. you to move into this deeper thinking mode. Great. And, yeah. and what we also then show is, you know, I alluded to the connectivity between the networks in the brain growing over time, even at rest, the more a kid engaged in that kind of meaning making, it's the connectivity, like really the crosstalk, right? You watch the two of them activating in little patterns and you just mm -hmm. say statistically, how much do they actually co-regulate each other and sort of work in a coordinated way to use Kurt's word, right? Mm -hmm. And what we show is that the coordination increases more in kids who were doing more of that uh, neural activity and talk two years before. So what we think is that the executive control is being invoked in the service of managing your cognition into this deeper effortful space of thinking. And, and that's something that's really important because people often yeah. interpret my work around the default mode as meaning, oh, daydreaming and rest is really important. Well, that's true. Yeah. But yeah. that's not the only thing. Also, mm -hmm. effortful mm -hmm. internal deliberation around the deeper meaning of something mm -hmm. is really important. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and why does that matter a lot to educators? Because, um, you know, any kind of uh, thing that pulls you into the here and now ding, my cell phone, what? like one, two, three, all eyes on me, right? Or everybody's moving their pencil on the paper right now because we're writing our essays, right? That is undermining, right? That is deactivating these systems. So you need to, you need that because you need to dig in and get some work done, right? It's not okay to muse all day. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, understanding that that is not the, 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 uh, the, the you know, sine qua non, right, of, of, of productivity. It's not moving yeah. your pencil on the paper. Yeah. Yeah. Stopping to deeply reflect and make sense out of something, squinting your eyes, closing, you know, and thinking, like, don't interrupt me, I'm thinking, right, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, is also a kind of productivity that is potentially instrumental in brain growth as well as in learning and development. And yeah. it can't be done when you don't feel safe, mm -hmm. physically mm -hmm. or emotionally, like in terms of, like, ethnic belonging, and a feeling that my teacher really believes in me, you know, that kind of stuff, that kind of safety, as well as physical safety. If you're afraid somebody's gonna like, you know, hit you or you're, or you're like out in the street and you're like, don't get hit by a car, we're crossing the street, watch the walk sign, right? Neither of those is conducive to that mm, kind of deep mm, reflection. Mm, 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 we need to really attend to, and this is where I think social media, right? Might be really changing the kids' social dispositions, uh, uh, right? Is that yeah. you're developing really strong muscles potentially for the here and now like appearance oriented action oriented you respond i respond bingo right uh and high eye hand coordination in the video games and all that mm -hmm, goes on mm -hmm, great mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but what happens to this inner disposition to grow the broader meaning that actually improves you over time psychologically emotionally and neurologically yeah. it's not attending to that yeah and it's potentially yeah. undermining it it's got to be a balance. It's not one or the other. It's got to be a balance. And the ability to juggle between the two when it's, necessary. It's and yeah, that's what yeah. we think the role of the executive control network is. So there was this really yeah. great question 
yeah. that um, a woman named Carol Lee, who's like, you know, just a goddess in education research, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an emeritus professor now, um, right, who's done just beautiful work uh, throughout her career, especially with um, with low income, uh, you know, youth of color in poverty, right. Um, and she asked me one day at a meeting, she's like, because mm-hmm. she heard me talking about executive control network and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, Marianne, executive control in the service of what? Gang members and criminals have extraordinarily good executive control. And I'm like, that's a brilliant question, right? And now yeah. we're starting to come to an answer. Executive control in the service of noticing when you should marshal yourself into this deeper place mm-hmm. where you disengage from action mm-hmm. and you think on your own or with other people about mm-hmm. what are the ethical implications here? Mm-hmm. What's the historical context in which these actions are playing out? What is the possible space of futures mm-hmm. that could follow this, right? And, and when you think about it that way, this is kind of the essence of inoculation against genocide, right? Like not, not to take it all the way to the full extreme, like what is a genocide? It's when you get so caught up in these actions, right? That somebody else, usually the perpetrators, I mean, the, the masterminds are usually not the direct perpetrators, right? They're hanging out in some room thinking of this as an es- in an esoteric way. Yeah. But the people who actually carry out the atrocities are people who just get sucked into the action patterns, right? Mm. It's, it's no accident that somebody like Hitler, you know, sort of intuited that in order to get people to sort of not be inclined to reflect on the broader ethical implications and instead to just get the job done, you know, used up everybody's motion. Like we're all gonna move together in this very uncomfortable, difficult way of walking because it's gonna marshal all your wits into motor control. You're not gonna have any cognitive space left to shift yourself into this kind of more reflective mode where you can stop and realize what's the context here? Mm-hmm. What's the bigger implication mm-hmm. here? So it's, 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 yeah, it's about developing citizens with dispositions and inclinations to move themselves between these modes. And it's, mm-hmm. it's awkward at first, right? Like Kirk taught us that any skill that's newly developing is awkward at first and context dependent. Mm, mm, right they're gonna mm, they're gonna muse about the big deep implications of the kind of sneakers i wear and what that says about my identity and blah 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 right okay no your sneakers really aren't that important in the grand scheme of the universe kid (laughs) right but they're trying it on as a skill set like i'm gonna have a deeper meaning behind my blue hair you're like right don't the blue hair but we're gonna think about (laughs) what are you what what is your positionality in the world and how are you going to be a purposeful contributor to civil society right like let's do the real work together but we also have a have a huge tolerance for the development of this new skill which is very messy at mm, that age mm, very messy mm. you know and it's supposed to be messy and you can't shortcut that messiness and make it more efficient right yeah. kids need the chance you're going to learn win the soccer tournament you got to play soccer you can't just weight train and then get out there without any sense of how to play the game you have to develop <laughs> the dispositions right yeah, yeah. and so you know we we put our kids in a schoolhouse we grow all the cognitive, so to speak, muscles around stuff, and then we boost them on society and say, play the game of being a citizen. They haven't developed any skills for playing that game. Mm, They've got mm, the muscles, mm. maybe, in the best mm, situation. Mm, They've mm, got mm, them, mm. you know, they got the math scores and the reading scores or whatever they got, but they don't know how to play the game of being a reflective, productive citizen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of segues into the next part. The second half of this is, 
how it's almost counterintuitive when you first hear about this, that uh, the default mode network is actually more related to the, the higher functions and the abstractions. Uh, w- once you start understanding the logic behind it, it kind of makes sense. But for the sake of the listeners, can, can you touch on that a little bit? You've, you've talked about it a bit already in this uh, in the session, but uh, yeah, a little bit more. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. And yeah, it yeah. didn't make sense. When we first found this in the 2009 paper, Yeah. you know, I, honestly, I found it in 2007, but we didn't publish in 2009 because, well, it came out the beginning of 2008, really. <laughs> Because we couldn't make sense of it. We didn't mm, understand mm. why would these regions be activated yeah. for these kinds of emotions? Like, yeah, it, yeah. you know, this is supposed to be just kind of like freeform thought. And then we realized, like, and this is the big insight. And I wrote about this in a paper in 2012, which I'm sure mm. your listeners, you know, or you know, mm-hmm. you know rest mm-hmm. is not idleness in the perspective yes. of like science, right? Yes. I mean, that paper still, that, that paper was in the New York Times and the Washington Post this spring, right? It's still on people's minds when they yes. think about the yes. ideas. Because yeah. we still haven't, as a society, really understood it. I haven't either, right? But the idea is that, you know, this kind of thinking is not just freeform, task-independent. Mm. It's actually deep, deliberative, context-transcending thinking, right? It's about taking the here and now and seeing it together in a coordinated way where you integrate these different things. Kurt taught us this, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, You know, from that here and now, and that here and now, and that here and now, right? And recognizing there is a general overarching quality of mind or intention or systems level operational principle that is playing out in all of these places. And it's that that I need to really grapple with and understand, construct, and then deconstruct in a new situation. Like for example, with the racial reckoning that's happening in the US right now, that's Mm -hmm. us needing to deconstruct what we thought was the ethical implication, right? We we claim to care about freedom and, uh, and, and support of all citizens and equality, but wait, what did we actually base that on? We need to build it down you know, deconstruct it and build it in a different way. Um, and, and so that's why the default mode neural activities are so instrumental to this because it's fundamentally built in a space that is not in the real physical here and now. It's a space, it's a cultural space of ideas that we construct together, of identities, mm, mm, of mm, values, mm. of beliefs, of possible futures and historical precedents. That stuff that you can't see right here, right now, is the realm of the default mode network, you know, so to speak. That's very interesting. And that really helps define what the default mode network is, which is yes. different from what it was earlier. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah. It was just yeah. task independent thought for a long, mm-hmm. long time. And that's why I think that 2012 paper has been such a, you know, such a seminal one is yeah. because, you know, we basically laid out what the field had been sort of circling around for a while, which is like, mm. wait, wait, this isn't just, this isn't just nothing, mm. right? This isn't just like the default. <laughs> this is actually the platform on which you construct something that transcends the here and now. And that's what makes us human, you know? That's yeah. what makes us different than other animals um, where we're just sort of replaying episodic memories in that space, potentially, you know? and kind of learning in that very instrumental indexical way, we are able to actually rally that up 
with practice, with development, with skill, right? With context supportiveness mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. into something that becomes a springboard for ideas. And that's, that's, that's the essence of education is helping young people develop dispositions and skills for doing that. Mm, mm, mm. From knowing this, then um, what is your advice for teachers? How, how can they make sense of this and then do something in the classroom that hel helps their students? What advice uh, would you have for listening teachers? Yeah. Uh, I think the implications for education and for what teachers do and for how we support teachers and train teachers is really profound. Mm. Um, you know, I've been referring to this recently as a, like a Copernican revolution, right? Uh -huh. Where uh -huh. We really shift from, you know, trying to, you know, map what's happening in the sky. Everything goes from east to west mostly, but then once sometimes Mars goes retrograde and whatever, uh -huh. right? And you have to keep adding on all these little fixes to your model to try to make it work uh -huh. from your perspective, right, on Earth, um, until, you know, you realize, oh, what if we made the sun the center of the model, right? What if uh -huh. the sun were the center of the solar system? And then all of a sudden, the, the weirdnesses that need all these fixes and, you know, that just can't be explained, so they're ignored, right, um, resolve themselves. Many of them resolve themselves. And I think of that as what's, what's needed in education. When we shift mm. from the perspective of accountability and, you know, what the adults need out of the system, frankly, right, to centering on the people in the system's experience of learning, both the students and the teachers, it, you know, the need for all these extra little fixes and interventions mostly goes away. You know, you don't mm. need growth mindset interventions when your system naturally, you know, grows people who have a growth mindset, right? The fact yes. that we need to superimpose social emotional well-being stuff on top of the regular school day tells you that the regular school day does not promote wellness mm. right and we need to redesign the system around the core needs of the people in it mm. and mm. then i think you know the rest of this falls away and the system itself becomes much more functional and and we need you know, it's much more direct and efficient, right? When mm -hmm. we when we measure and, and look at things by the uh, experience of the person in the system as compared to the metrics and the numbers that we extract from it after the fact. Um, so what does it really mean for teaching? I've talked about this in, you know, several articles, including the one in Ed Leadership that I think you're going to distribute. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the key shifts, I think, is around really starting to attend uh, and teach to, right, support in our, in our um, uh, pedagogical designs and curricula, the internal narrative that the student is building around uh -huh. their own agency in the intellectual space, around their own understanding and the feeling of power that it gives you to investigate and become curious about things and then come to understand them over time in a much more process-oriented way in a much more student focused way than our traditional education systems now support. So that we're really attending to helping students build narratives 
inside their own minds around how math works, right? Around how, how physical objects move in the world, right? Mm -hmm. how, uh, how literature expresses historical periods and experiences, right? All of these things. And then the information that they need that the teacher before would have pushed at the kids is instead the kids pulling it in. They, they need to understand fractions, like the boy and that young man in, in the article, right? He needs to understand fractions because he's so fascinated by the, the idea of infinity mm -hmm. and this Zeno's paradox of getting halfway, 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 halfway to the door and never reaching the door, yeah, yeah. right? That, you know, he, he now says, oh, teacher, can you, can you teach me more about fractions? I need to understand it so that I can figure out what's going on in this really fascinating problem, right? And uh, when the, the, the shift like that, that Copernican shift is made so that it's, this, it's the child or the learner's narrative, what they are constructing internally around the information that really is the center of the educational enterprise as compared to what they produce and give back and what they can sort of uh, regurgitate after it was given to them or mm -hmm. even sort of manipulate mentally and then give back, right? Which we call that critical thinking, but that's like the iceberg tip of critical thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's what kids come up with on their own, the dispositions yeah. they bring to think about complex problems that really, really matter. And, and that in our data show are growing the brain, like mm -hmm. above and beyond the effects of IQ or socioeconomic status, right? Um, so we want to we want to shift that so that we are really engaging young people in becoming curious and becoming agentic in their own learning and really kind of bringing their own authentic selves and then growing and extending and elaborating their own authentic selves in the educational space. And that is a that is a major flip of perspective. And it's one that um, our modern world absolutely calls for. The model of schooling that we have right now um, is just not up to the job for preparing happy, healthy, purposeful citizens who can actually engage with the global world we are in right now, right? Which it's much less about just can you read, can you calculate so that you can do, you know, basic things and the rest of what you learn, you learn in apprenticeships and all this kind of stuff in the past, right? Mm -hmm. Here, it's we, in order to really be fully actualized as a citizen of the world, you need to have dispositions of mind. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to think about complex information and parse that and, and know where to look for more or where to steer yourself and the ways and dispositions in which you engage with information and with each other is really infinitely more complex uh, than it was in the past in terms of the, the role of school in that process. And so we really need to rethink how we do school. It's going to be uh, really a, a courageous move, but it's something that, you know, the entire humanity really relies on because right now only a select few, a very lucky kids, right, uh, are, are provided the kinds of opportunities and experiences to really think about deep projects, to really think about their own process and learning, and to engage with that process and use their teacher as a resource, use their community as a resource, use the information, you know, uh, uh, you know, on the internet as a resource to pull in and build things that they're actively constructing. And until we shift our education system to really make that the focus, we're not going to be producing in a systematic way the kinds of opportunities that kids need to thrive and flourish 
both uh, in an academic way, but also in uh, a, a way that promotes purposeful work and citizenship for their lifetime. And, and the really deep irony of this is that the, the kinds of structures that we impose on kids now and the kinds mm -hmm. of practices that we engage them in, even when kids do well in those, mm -hmm. I think are kind of conditioning them into patterns of mind and heart, you know, patterns and dispositions of mind uh, and of feeling and thinking that are not healthy. And we have major mental health problems, even among our most successful students, right? Yeah, yeah, and even yeah. those who thrive in this system, who get all their straight A's and get to high-level universities and do all this stuff, many, many of them hit age 40 and crash into the wall and say, what am I doing? I'm not even interested in this, right? Yeah, and yeah. they don't have you know, they don't have um, the, the, the skills or the dispositions of mind to engage in a, in a really active way with constructing the world and life that they do, that they are interested in, right? Um, and we need to really be brave about that and take a hard look at some of our most cherished traditional ways of thinking about achievement mm -hmm. and potentially mm -hmm. dismantle those because they're not just uh, kind of not doing the job. They're, they're actively harming kids, I think, and disenfranchising wow. kids in, wow. a, lot of, in yeah. a lot of cases. And I know that's a strong statement, but the further I get into this work, the more I'm compelled to say it that way. It really is, in many cases, bad for kids, even bad for kids who are apparently right now thriving in it. It does not teach mm -hmm. them the dispositions mm -hmm. they need to really engage as global citizens who are responsible for the future of the planet we're on. What do you do? I mean, you, you train so many teachers and you talk to so many administrators and you're in so many groups. What do you do when you have administrators that just saying, no, we just want to go the traditional way? How do you yeah, convince them? You know, that's tough. That's really tough. Yeah. And I do appreciate that. You know, we are working within the systems that we have. Well, you know, it has to happen across a couple of levels. You know, the, the, the okay. policy makers yeah. and the administrators need to be on board, right? And, and I, I just have to hope that you know they'll be courageous enough to take a hard look at what we're mm -hmm. doing and really think about the role of school in, in young people's lives differently. I mean, we need to develop young people. Learning is not the main aim of school. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. learning is there to serve something much, much bigger and more powerful, which is development, mm -hmm. where you learn in order to be able to develop yourself in particular ways. And we're not attending to those ways That's of powerful. development. We're attending yeah. only to the learning piece, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I would say to those and do say to those administrators and policymakers, I understand where you're coming from. It's well-intentioned, but the science just doesn't bear it out. It does not bear out that that is the most effective model mm. for growing healthy citizens and young people who can think and who are well in themselves and who actually literally grow the structures of their brains, the physical stuff in your head in patterns that will help them be happy, healthy, uh, socially engaged, uh, you know, for the rest of their lives. Okay. So we're gonna have to face the music. You know, yeah, it's easier yeah. to fall back into the patterns that feel comfortable and it's easier to fall back into these uh, metrics and, and outcome measures that we know how to interpret. But what happens when you find out that those measures don't really measure the things that matter? 
Mm, mm, we're going to mm, have to mm. step back and we ourselves as the adults in the system have to be brave about admitting that and designing yeah. something different. And there are really excellent examples of, of, of new models of education that aren't particularly new, actually. Many of them have been around for decades, but they haven't really caught on because they really, you know, at, 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 a, at, a, at scale, because mm -hmm. of the administrators, you know, kind of being stuck in the system, yeah. because there's this strange narrative that, you know, those things are okay for some kids, but not for all kids, right? These mm. kids need those, you know, and then there's also, um, you know, the difficulty of actually teaching in these ways, which the teachers love it. Once they are once they are really acculturated into these ways of thinking about teaching and learning, you know, they never go back. Yeah, but it, yeah. it really takes a, a substantial amount of training. The teachers almost become developmental scientists in their own, you know, in their own classrooms, yeah. right? They're engaging with young people and, 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 and noticing the ways in which they think and feel and, and um, you know, construct ideas. And then working with those young people to shape that pattern in developmentally appropriate ways over time, that really puts a lot of, uh, of emphasis on the professional development of the teachers. You know, mm -hmm. teachers are up for it, but they need the training, they need the opportunities. We need, to, we need to expose them to these ways of thinking about teaching and learning and, you know, grow up, um, uh, you know, grow up their skills just like the kids, we're all learning as we go and figuring it out as we go. And so we really- So it's really multi-level, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. It's multi-level. The yes, administrators, right. the teachers, that's the students, right. everybody's got to get in on it. Yeah. That's yeah. right. And the thing is, you know, that you can't forget is that the teachers themselves and the parents were for the most part educated in the kind of traditional system we have now. That's right. right? And that's, that's right. what they know how to recreate. Yeah. But yeah. sadly, it isn't optimal, mm. you know? That fits perfectly in with the next question I have for you. Um, uh, as a parent, uh, so you're a researcher. You have you do all this fantastic work. Uh, and so the big question for me, I'm also a parent. How do you balance your work uh, with your family life? And does your research affect your parenting? I'm sure it does. How, how do you do that all? What's your secret? I would say my parenting affects my research just as much as my research affects my okay, that, Probably yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's probably amazing things, right? You just watch these little amazing people, you know, kind of grow themselves and do it. And you're shaping and you're kind of orchestrating a world for them, you know, mm -hmm. that, you know, that they can grow themselves in. You know, you're not doing stuff to them. You're helping them manage the world so that they can do stuff for themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's that kind of answer where I think it was at what, what's been so incredibly amazing to me, just mm -hmm. awe inspiring is to watch my own kids who are now, you know, teenagers. Um, one of them just finished her first year of university. One of them is in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, kind of do these things that I had studied and learned about in graduate school and that I've been thinking about and to watch them actually invent these stages for themselves and play them out has been incredibly interesting and and um so that's wonderful and and also then do, do you the, take notes on them as well 
no, I just think about it. I mean, when they were little, I think I did just more okay. document because it was fun to watch when they did different things that were yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, no. Uh, okay. But I, but I, you know, that said, I do use them as examples. I think about it all the time. My my daughter is nineteen. She just came home from, um, you know, uh, she's working in Wyoming, which is a very rural. Uh, very conservative uh, state, mm -hmm. uh, you know, doing conservation work. And she's working with people who are from a very, very different demographic group than anybody she's ever really lived with before. Okay. Living with them and, you know, working for 10 days at a time in the field and all this stuff. And, you know, she came back and told me some things about what she's realizing about her own identity, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, what she does is not her identity, right? Or mm -hmm. does not do in the case of a teenager in modern society. But, Instead, those things are just now they're falling into just kind of patterns of behavior. You don't do the, you know, you don't use drugs. You don't drink too much. You don't do all these things, right? But, but now her identity is becoming really the ideas and the disposition she brings. And she's explaining this to me. And I'm like, really? That is so fascinating. Tell me more. You know what I mean? So she's teaching me about like, okay, what does a transition to young adulthood look like? Oh, cool. And you know what I mean? And I'm noticing the stuff that she's saying me, to me and also using it to kind of refine and build theory mm -hmm. around development that we then look at more broadly, you know? So, so I learned a ton from my own kids. Um, and, uh, you know, that's been really fun. But then there's also the really practical side. Like, how do you just, you know, have, and you're in this, right? How do you have kids and also do enough work? Mm -hmm. and, and there, I think you really have to, um, well, first of all, we need we need the we need uh, you know government systems that support young parents in um, that's right yeah and being able to work. I mean, you know, uh, and being able to spend time with their families, right? Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And you know, childcare and high quality preschools and all these kinds of things that we absolutely need. Um, and then I was fortunate enough, you know, to be able to have access to those kinds of things and to family who helped watch our kids and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think you really need to be strategic about it. You can't play catch up, you know, catch as catch can and like try to slip in your work on the side. You really have nice. to have, you know, uh, chunks of time set aside where your kids are well and they're doing things and they're engaged and they've got their life and you've got yours and you're working. And that was the only way I could really make this go. Do they sometimes impinge on each other? Do my kids sometimes have to not have me when they wanted me? Sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and do sometimes uh, I have to, you know, uh, you know, cut off work er earlier than I would have wanted to in order to be with them sometimes. Yeah. But mostly, you know, for me, what works, but different families do it differently. I can't really work at night. Like that doesn't work for me. Many families, they're, you know, academic families, the parents work after the kids go to bed at night, stuff like mm, that. Mm, mm. I, that doesn't work for me. So I, I mean, I worked basically eight to six, eight to 6.30, you know, every day, weekdays, that's it. Weekends, mm -hmm. evenings, mornings, I'm, I'm, I'm my mom, I'm a mom, right? Yeah. And I'm doing my family stuff. And they would start to catch on me like, mom, you're not thinking about us right now, are you? But I'm like, okay, you know, like, <laughs> right, I'm thinking about that grand proposal that's over to you. Let me get my, yeah, okay, I'm here now, right? And you, I really have to learn, had to learn and continually learn. It's always a struggle to kind of compartmentalize and, you know, uh, really sort of you know, work and not waste time. When I have work time, you're working. I don't go out to lunch. I don't talk on the phone. I don't do anything extra during that time. That is my work time. And then when I'm um, when I'm not working, I am uh, you know I'm with my family. And that's that. Then then the wow. the downside also is that's about all you have time for. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, 
vacations with just my husband or something that has not yeah we don't do that I, you know when the kids are all grown up then we'll do it again and many yeah. people love to do that and make time for that and that's wonderful too but for me it was basically just the kids and you know you know the family life and uh and work and you know friendships kind of where i could fit a game on the sides <laughs> um you know yeah so that's, I, I totally get that well Oh, that's a lot of great advice. You're such a fantastic role model. Oh, amazing. Nice. This is this is great. Yeah. You know, great something stuff. else I think as a role model for other, you know, professors and, and, and teachers and scientists and people who are working, you know, what I'm trying to build now, I think I, I'm kind of falling into this role where my postdocs and my graduate students, mm -hmm. you know, um, have, have young children and families. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, trying to build models of a lab where they can do that uh, and, and they get their work done, right? But also, you know, their family time is respected uh, or, you know, sometimes a little bit of a hybrid mix, let people figure it out for themselves. You know, I have mm. one person who's a, a um, you know, a technician who does data analysis for us. She just had a baby and she just moved uh, far away to, for her husband's work to a place where there is no MRI for her to work on, right? Uh, and you know, we, now with Zoom and all this, she can be part of lab meetings with her two-month-old on her lap and the baby just wants to be held all day. So she holds baby and does her work, <laughs> but if she needs to stop, you know, she does it whenever she, whenever works for her and it's very flexible, right? We have, we have young moms like, you know, like, sorry to be direct, but this kind of stuff I had to manage and nobody ever talked about it, right? I've mm. met like young moms like pumping breast milk and lab meeting, right? They're just sitting there with their Zoom up to here and nobody yeah, can see what's yeah. going on. And, you know, they're doing both, right? And and so we need to really be flexible about that kind of thing and, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. try to support people um, so that they can, they can parent and do their work both and, and be really careful about not uh, having such... Um, strict structures built mm -hmm. in that that people can't make them work for their family situation we really need to be flexible about that stuff all right thank you that's wonderful advice wow wow yeah. thank you that's that's a great place to end today i'm sure the listeners will thoroughly enjoy this and get a lot out of it thank you very much for taking the time yeah thank you it's good to see you lost in citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.